0: welcome to the british history podcast my name is jamie and this is episode 268 viking invasion this show is ad free due to member support and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent i offer members only content including extra episodes and rough transcripts you can get instant access to all the members extras by signing up for membership at the british for about the price of a latte per month and thank you very much to rick Anne, and amy for signing up already Athelflad, Lady of Mercia, and her brother, King Edward, had been bringing the fight to the Danes. They had been stretching their borders into Danish-controlled lands, and they hadn't just been on the offense, they'd been winning. When an army was raised out of Leicester in 913 for the express purpose of countering the Mercian advance, Athelflad and the Ferd of Mercia defeated them. And they did so even though Leicester wasn't alone. They were fighting right alongside their Northampton allies. Mercia was out there kicking ass and taking names. But oddly, despite that victory against a combined army of Danes, many historians refer to 913 as unusually quiet. And I've been trying to wrap my head around why they take that view, considering what happened. And the only answer that I have is that 913 was pretty much just a Mercian year. The news coming out of 913 from Wessex wasn't all that much. It almost exclusively came out of Mercia. So for King Edward, 913 probably was a bit of a quiet year. But for Athelflaed, it was a year of triumph. Mercia of old, the warrior Mercia, was back. And as 914 dawned, Athelflaed continued her project of fortifying Mercia. She began by gathering her forces early in the campaigning season marching to Edisbury and building a fortress there. Afterwards, we're told that she once again gathered up her troops and in late autumn, she built a fortress in Warwick. And that doesn't really give us a lot to go on, but it does raise questions about what her intent was. Unfortunately, she's not our scribe and so she can't tell us. However, we can make some educated guesses as to what she had in mind. The fort at Eddisbury, like many locations, is difficult to precisely plot on a map. However, the modern parliamentary district of Edisbury is likely its proper location, and building at that location would have made a great deal of sense, as it was near the northern portion of Mercia. So placing a fort there wouldn't just help secure Mercia from land-based invasions, but it would also secure northern Mercia from water-based invasions. Don't forget that the Danes used waterways to great effect, and the Anglo-Saxons had spent the last several generations learning the hard way that if those waterways were left undefended, an army could easily strike virtually anywhere in their kingdoms with nothing more sophisticated than a few longships. If Mercia would be safe against assault, the waterways leading into the realm had to be significantly defended. So strategically, it makes sense Furthermore, if you look at Edisbury, it's in line with Stafford and Tamworth, which were her previous construction projects. So it's beginning to look like a fortified line of defense against the Eastern Kingdoms. But something that piques my interest is the fact that Edisbury was dangerously close to Danish territory, and it was also close to Chester, which was the site of one of Athelflad's fights against the Danes. So could that be why she was up there with all the Mercians? because this is still part of that entry that talks about her marching around with all the Mercians. I mean, is it possible that, like Chester, this story of construction is actually covering up a fight? I'd say that the odds of that are at least decent. But after she was done with Edisbury, she grabbed all her forces and marched to Warwick, which was far to the south, and she started building a fortress there in the autumn. So why did she do this? Well, Warwick was about 33 miles from Leicester, and about the same distance from Northampton. Two boroughs that she had just finished fighting off the year earlier. So strategically, it filled an important hole in her defenses against the northern border. And actually, if you look at what she built over the last year, you can actually see a pretty clear line against the eastern portions of her land. Edisbury, Stafford, Tamworth, and Warwick are all pretty much in this diagonal line. But... I don't think that's the whole story. Warwick's position as being within a day or two's march of Leicester and Northampton doesn't fully explain why Warwick was important. You see, like Edisbury, Warwick was on a major waterway. It was on the River Avon. So in addition to being part of the defensive line, Warwick might have been intended to stop any seagoing armies from sailing into the heart of Mercia. But once again... I'm left with a question. Why did she go there with her army? Are we missing something? It certainly seems possible. And to get the rest of the story, I think we need to look at versions A, C, and D of the Chronicle. And there, we find a remarkable amount of detail about what was happening in the South. And it actually ties in with what was happening in Europe broadly. See, across the channel, in Brittany, trouble was brewing. The duchy and sometimes kingdom of Brittany had a particularly complicated relationship with the Scandinavians. Often they would fight, but sometimes they'd set all that aside and they would work together against a common foe. For quite some time, Brittany had been playing a high wire act where they were trying to secure their independence from the Franks with the help of the Danes. And thanks to Charles the Bald in the mid 9th century, we know that this strategy of allying with pirates carried enormous risks. And apparently, the rulers of Brittany thought that they would succeed with the Northmen where the Franks had catastrophically failed. But in the early years of the 10th century, it was already becoming clear that Brittany had made that same fatal miscalculation. And it became all too obvious in 907 when King Allen of Brittany died. And Gourmalian, the Count of Cornwall, took command of the region. Now, it's not clear exactly where Gourmalian came from. And as a consequence, I can't tell you what about the succession caused the Scandinavians to mobilize. In fact, I can't even tell you if it was this succession that caused the mobilization. It might have just been a coincidence. But whatever did cause it, suddenly, as soon as Gormalian took the throne... Brittany found itself under sustained attack. A torrent of Scandinavian crews came to the peninsula, seeking their fortune at the end of a sword. Now, King Gourmalion wasted no time. He raised his armies and fought off invasion after invasion. And he was impressively up to the task. For seven long years, he defeated every army that sailed against him, every crew that dared to land on his shores. But they kept coming. His victories in the field didn't slow them down. As soon as one army was defeated, far to the north, another would begin its preparations. See, the Vikings only needed to be lucky once. Just one of them needed to defeat the army of Brittany. King Gormelian, on the other hand, well, he had to be lucky every single time if he hoped to hold on to his kingdom. And in 914, as Athelflad was out there securing her borders, his luck ran out. King Gormelian fell in battle, and his kingdom fell with him. Brittany was now Viking-occupied territory. Many of the Viking captains stayed and settled, but not all of them. Some of them looked at their victory and thought to themselves, let's keep this party going. And that's how we learn of two Jarls, Oter and Hrold. And they had immediately set about building a massive fleet off the coast of Brittany and this fleet was organized for a singular purpose. Oter and Rold were going to cross the English Channel and go a Viking. Once their preparations were completed, they set sail. They headed south until they were off the coast of Kent, then turned west and took the long voyage across the southern portion of Britain, until finally they turned north and east again and headed straight into the Bristol Channel. The southern defenses had been breached. And it wasn't just Mercy and Wessex who were at risk. The whole southern coast of Wales was exposed to this fleet. And the Vikings immediately took advantage of that fact. The Chronicle tells us that upon reaching the Severn Estuary, the great fleet, quote, ravaged in Wales and everywhere along the coast where it suited them, end quote. And during these raids, they captured the Bishop of Arkenfield, a guy named Kafiliog, which actually is about the most Welsh name I've ever seen. Now, Arkenfield was located just to the west of Hereford. It was a plot near the River Wye and the River Mono. It's a lovely little spot, actually, but it's not exactly coastal. In fact, Arkenfield was about 36 miles from the coast. So that raises a question. What was Bishop Cefeliog doing that brought him so close to the Bristol Channel that he could get captured by this fleet? Was he organizing defenses? Bishops sometimes did that. Was he arranging a treaty? Sometimes bishops would do that too. Hell, was he just unlucky and caught on a holiday? We have no idea. But thanks to this stroke of bad luck, all of a sudden, Oter and Rold had a bargaining chip in their hands. Bishop Kefeliog was high-ranking, and he was religious. So the chances were pretty good that someone would be willing to pay for his release. And we're told that it was King Edward who ultimately ransomed him, paying a full 40 pounds for the bishop's safe return. And this is kind of odd. If you look at a map, you can see that Herefordshire isn't West Saxon territory. It's Mercian. And yet here we are with Edward paying the ransom rather than Athelflad. I'm not sure precisely what happened there so I also don't know what it means. But Cefiliog was released, and the great army of Oter and Hrald had an idea. That bishop, the one that was worth so much money, well, he came from a place called Arkenfield. Why not go for a visit? So, upon taking the ransom and releasing the bishop, the Viking fleet sailed up the Severn, found a place to beach their ships and marched inland raiding right through the heart of Gloucestershire and Herefordshire. And the Chronicle tells us that in response to this, the, quote, men from Hereford and Gloucester and from the nearest boroughs, end quote, didn't appreciate that at all. And so they marched out to try and fight them back to their ships. So here we see some of the forces of Mercia once again heading to war. But I'm not entirely sure that they were alone. Remember in the beginning of this episode when we heard about Athelflad marching with her army to Edisbury and building a fortress there in early summer? Well, as we've been talking about for several episodes now, the Chronicle during this period sometimes disguises battles as construction. So that raises the question of what was Athelflad doing that required her army? And now, upon looking at the chronicle, we see that there were large numbers of troops coming from the various shires and boroughs to fight against this Viking fleet. And based upon the timeline, that probably would have happened in early summer, or at least thereabouts. And if Athelflaed and her army were up in the north building and possibly fighting against anybody near Edisbury, well then that makes me wonder if Athelflaed grabbed her army and marched south to deal with this advancing Viking army. After all, she would have had plenty of time to learn of its presence. They'd been ravaging all over the place, and King Edward had already had the time to go and pay the ransom for Bishop Cefiliog. So I think it's likely that she knew that they were there. Furthermore, the West Saxon sources are quite clear that what marched on the Viking fleet wasn't Edward's West Saxon army. It was specifically the Mercians. And the Mercian Register is clear that Athelflad had her army with her. Consequently, it stands to reason that large portions of Mercia's military wouldn't really be in the area. It would be wherever Athelflaed was. Now granted, the Ferd does work in shifts, so there would be some off-duty members of the Ferd that were around. And so it is possible that it was just the locals. But this whole thing gives me pause, because I would be shocked if Athelflaed was content to just hang around with the bulk of her army up in Edisbury while her lands were being raided. So my guess is that when the scribes talk about the furred of the nearby shires being raised, he was talking about Athelflad and her army. Furthermore, I think what happens next reinforces that view. Because Athelflad had a history of beating the Danes at their own game, and she was going to do it again. While Rold and Oter's great fleet beached their ships, the Mercian army advanced. While they ravaged their way inland, the Mercian army kept coming. And this Viking invasion fleet had seen a streak of victories. They'd been doing quite well. And actually, the ransom that they'd snagged for the bishop seems to have been so easy that they might have dropped their guard. Because Roald and Otar were wholly unprepared for what was bearing down upon them. We aren't given a tactical account of the battle. We aren't told a blow-by-blow account, but the Mercians fell upon the Vikings in large numbers, and in the melee that followed, Jarl Oter's brother was slain, and then Jarl Hrold himself fell. Only Jarl Oter remained, and all around him, his warriors were dying in large numbers. It soon became apparent that if they held their ground and stayed in the field, they would all die. So Oter and what remained of his army fled, and what followed must have been a brutal chase. And it went on until the fleeing Danes had been corralled into what the chronicle called quote, an enclosure, end quote. Now, when this phrase shows up in the chronicle, it isn't immediately clear what the scribes were talking about, but farther down in the entry, things start to make a little bit more sense. Oter and the remnant of his invasion fleet ran to their ships, sailed back down the Severn, and fled to the island of Flathome. Now, Flathome is just a tiny little island off the coast of Cardiff. There's really not much on it. Even now, it's mostly deserted scrubland, except for a few buildings and a lighthouse. You can pull it up on Google Maps and see it for yourself. But for a desperate otter, that island would serve as an enclosure. He and his remaining fighters could be safe there. At least for now but the Vikings weren't the only maritime people in the area. The Anglo-Saxons also had ships. In fact, even though Mercia wasn't a particularly naval region, we've seen plenty of references to trade ships in Mercia. And given the fact that Oter was chased all the way to this island, I'm pretty sure that they loaded up onto whatever they could, pretty much anything they could float, and pursued them as far as this island. And so as a consequence, you had a blockade, which is essentially... Siege warfare. And siege warfare is boring. Even siege warfare that involves ships is boring. And my guess is that it was during this period, a period where they had time on their hands, that Athelflad began to construct Warwick. Jarl Oter might be trapped on a scrubby island in the Bristol Channel, but there is no guarantee that he wouldn't get a wild hare and row right back up the Severn, head to the Avon, and strike into the heart of Mercia. And so moving to Warwick and constructing a fortress there would have made a great deal of sense. And it would fit within the timeline, since the Mercian Register says that she constructed Warwick in the early autumn, which, based on the full entry from this year, seems like it would have been during this long, boring period of siege warfare. But as for the Vikings on Flathome, well, they didn't have public infrastructure works to keep them busy. Furthermore, they're in quite a bit of trouble Because Flathome isn't a verdant orchard. It's just a little scrubby island. And if they planned to withstand a siege there, they needed food. And they weren't going to find much food here. So, in the dead of night, Oter sent out a raiding party. They quietly boarded their ships, hoping that the sound of water lapping at the shore would hide the sound of their oars. And set course for a small village just to the southwest of their island refuge. It was a settlement just to the east of Watchit. And once the ships passed out of view, Jarl O'Tur and his men could do little more than wait. And they waited. And waited. And waited. And eventually, the ships returned. Or at least some of them did. And the survivors who disembarked told of how they anchored their ships just off the coast and moved as quickly and quietly as they could inland. But rather than finding an undefended village ripe for plunder, they fell directly into a trap. Anglo-Saxon soldiers were already there, waiting for them. In the melee that followed, most of the raiding band was cut down. Only the few who ran and managed to swim back to the ships survived. they lost men, ships, and gained nothing in return. This was a disaster, but their situation hadn't changed. And as a consequence, Oter and his men had no choice. They still needed food. And perhaps that first raiding party just had bad luck. So once again, Oter sent out another raiding party and instructed them to again use the night for cover. But this time, rather than heading for Watchet, which was clearly some sort of military position, instead they should head further down the estuary to the village of Porlock. And they did as they were asked. And Jarl Oter waited for their return. And once again, a few ships with barely a handful of battered and empty-handed men returned to Flathome. And they told a very similar story as before. That the village wasn't a normal village. And instead, it had soldiers stationed there, waiting for them. Looking at the two ambushes and its dwindling food reserves... Jarl Oter might have thought that the fates had turned on him, that his luck was running out. The reality, though, was that he simply underestimated the children of Alfred. Athelflaed and Edward were raised in court, the same way that Alfred had been raised. And consequently, they were able to draw upon a wealth of experience, and they had learned exactly how the Danes operate. While other rulers might have been content to simply blockade and wait, Athelflad and Edward had seen the dangers that come from letting your guard down, especially in moments when the Scandinavians appeared to be weak. As they grew up, they saw Guthrum, Hastin, and countless others take advantage of Alfred's trusting nature. The reign of Alfred had been one long lesson in the folly of giving the Danes the benefit of the doubt, and his children had been diligent students. So while the Mercian army was chasing the Danes to Flatholm, King Edward wasn't taking any chances. He also mobilized his army. Now, taking the island by force ran the risk of heavy casualties. You couldn't risk that. Furthermore, while patrolling by sea could blockade any large scale movement of the Viking fleet, a small detachment still might be able to sneak through the lines. And that was a big problem because Jarl Ocher's position in the Bristol Channel meant that large parts of the western portion of Wessex were exposed. Edward couldn't leave that unanswered. So he raised his army, and he positioned them all along the southern side of the Severn Estuary, from Cornwall to Avonmouth. The southwest was now teeming with West Saxon troops, and they were all keeping a close eye out for any sign of attack. And that is what Jarl Oter's raiding bands kept running into. Otur and his men had kicked a hornet's nest. And honestly, the only sane thing to do after you've kicked a hornet's nest is to start screaming, flail a bit, and run out of there as fast as possible. But I get the sense that Jarl Oter was too stubborn for that. Perhaps suicidally so. And the reason why I feel that way is because there are other, better opportunities in the area. He didn't need to stay here. I mean, there were places where Oter wasn't leading the only band of Vikings, and he wasn't desperately holding off two incredibly pissed-off kingdoms all on his own. For example, just one year earlier in 913, a new and ferocious wave of Viking attacks had been launched against the Irish kingdoms. If Oter was looking to make his fortune, that would be a pretty good place to start. But for some ungodly reason, rather than seeking terms and heading to Ireland, they stuck it out on Flathome. And they stayed there even after their two raiding parties ended in disaster and men started dying of hunger. And we're not talking about just one or two warriors dying of hunger. The Chronicle tells us that many of Oter's army died of hunger. So even when it was clear that they might starve to death, they still held Flathome. And that's just kind of strange. And it makes me wonder if we're missing part of the story. Because based on the facts that we have, I can't imagine a good reason to sit there and watch your men die of starvation when they could just, you know, leave. And they could leave. That option was definitely there. And I know this because eventually, after many of their men died of hunger, the Vikings and the Anglo-Saxons came to terms. Oter would provide them with hostages. And in exchange, he would promise to leave Greater Wessex. And so, in autumn, Oter and what remained of his army boarded their ships and sailed straight for the Welsh kingdom of Devad. And the Chronicle doesn't tell us if this was an attack, or if it was just a waypoint to resupply and gain new crewmates. Honestly, either one is possible. But Devad wasn't their final stop. After that, Oter and his fleet headed straight for Ireland. Their raiding days weren't over yet. But his failed attempt at raiding had certainly been a wake-up call for Athelflad and Edward. I mean, at around the same time that Ohtar was on Flat home, or maybe shortly after he fled, Athelflad gathered her troops and marched on Warwick in the early autumn. And that's how we get that second portion of Athelflad's construction campaign. And now that we've talked about this attack at the Severn, you can see why she might have been so keen to reinforce the Avon. Considering what was happening in Ireland and Brittany, there were plenty of pirates in the area and Oter had taught her that any one of them could strike deep into her lands just by going up the Severn and potentially going up the Avon. So Athelflaed was plugging that hole in her defenses. And meanwhile, King Edward and the army of Wessex were all dressed up and really didn't have anywhere they had to be. And it hadn't escaped Edward's memory that just last year, Leicester had allied with Northampton and attacked his sister. So, in late autumn, before November 11th, King Edward and his army marched to Buckingham. And if you look on a map, Buckingham is just 20 miles south of those treacherous louts in Northampton. And it looks like that was exactly what Edward had in mind. Because once he got there, he ordered that two burrs be constructed. One on either side of the river. Now it isn't specified which river they are building on, but it was probably the Ouse. And these twin burrs, in combination with the burrs constructed by Athelflad the year earlier, placed a great deal of pressure on the five burrs and any shires that might feel inclined to ally with them. Shires like Northampton. The whole region was militarizing. And maybe it was the fact that Edward and Athelflad seemed like they were specifically designed to do one thing defeat Danes. Or maybe it was the intimidating factor of having the army of Wessex sitting on its borders. Maybe it was the construction of the burrs. Maybe it was an unrecorded battle or series of battles that led to the construction of those burrs. I really don't know, but something led Earl Thurdecel to realize that he only had one card left to play. If he wanted to stay in power, he needed to submit to Edward. And so sometime before martinmas november 11th of 914 earl thirdesell along with the nobles of bedford and many of the nobles of northampton went to king edward and submitted to his authority wessex was growing If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter. You can find us at British Podcast, and you can find all our other communities by going to the upper right-hand corner of com. Thanks for listening.